Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo and I'm the Adult Learning Programme Manager at the Royal Academy. I'm delighted to introduce uh, this afternoon's talk by Professor Robert Merrick, who will be introducing the exhibition Second Nature, the Art of Charles Tunnicliffe RA, which is on in the Tennant Gallery, which hopefully you walked through on your way in. Um, Charles Tunnicliffe is Britain's foremost 20th century wildlife artist and a Royal Academician. He first came to prominence as an etcher and engraver in the late 1920s and early 1930s, later becoming known for his prints. Since the 1930s, his pictures have been appreciated as illustrations for books in advertisements or as decorations on biscuit tins and collectible cards. And in this talk uh, today, Professor Robert Merrick will be reintroducing an artist whose work has become more familiar than his name. Um, Professor Robert Merrick is head of the School of Art at Aberystwyth University and also keeper of the School of Art Museum and Galleries. He trained in fine art and art history and now writes on 20th century British art um, and collecting the history of printmaking and art in Wales. Um, through his work building the art collection and archives at Aberystwyth, his research involves original investigation into the work of lesser known British artists and collectors. His books, catalogues, resume, and articles are often accompanied by touring exhibitions. Co-curated with Dr. Harry Heuser, the exhibition Second Nature, the Art of Charles Tunnicliffe, RA, and accompanying catalogue um, uh, resume prints is their third collaboration with the Royal Academy of Arts with previous exhibitions on Sydney Lee, RA, and Stanley Anderson, RA. They're currently working towards books on Wales and its landscapes and Harry Morley ARA. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Robert Merrick. Thank you. Thank you all for coming on this uh, lovely Saturday afternoon. As I was walking here, I, I thought I'd come colourful, but um, as I was walking uh, up, up to the academy, I went past Marks and Spencers and had this shirt with all parrots over them. And I was, I was all ready to jump in and buy it and, and uh, do a quick change when I arrived here. Today, I want to um, introduce you to the work of uh, Charles Tunnicliffe. Um, generations um, have are familiar with his uh, artworks. Um, but they mainly know them through um, his Ladybird books, his works for um, uh, some of the Ladybird books, What to See in the Spring, the Summer, the uh, uh, Autumn and Winter, Wildlife um, and uh, Life on the Farm. And his books are, are remembered, I think, with particular um, affection. Adult readers of nature's and countryside books uh, by the likes of Henry Williamson, Sidney Rogerson, and uh, Alison Utley will have been immersed in the books that he uh, illustrated, over a hundred of them throughout his uh, lifetime. Um, I don't think there's any of us here that will remember his illustrations for Bob Martin back in, the, the in 1935, uh, but this is some of his first uh, commercial uh, work. He got this fantastic commission to illustrate a marketing campaign for uh, Bob Martin condition powders. Um, this was long before the Trade Descriptions Act of 1968, so they were very wild in their um, um, sort of descriptions of the efficacy of these condition powders. 
because they said it's not natural for a dog to molt, uh, that actually we can stop a dog molting simply by its condition powders. But his commission um, was to illustrate dogs before and after taking Bob Martins. So this <laughs> and went to the Bob Martins archive in, uh, it's in Yatton in, in Somerset, and um, they've got all the archives there relating to, to this project. And they recorded that 300 million separate advertisements went out over the course of 1935. And he did about 25 wood engravings um, for this um, uh, uh, project. The, his collectible tea cards for, for Brooke Bond in 1958-59 uh, um, were uh, sort of swapped in, in, in school playgrounds right across Britain. They were also reproduced as, as cards, uh, sort of charts, I should say, uh, for the, for the um, schoolrooms. He was very much a jobbing commercial artist as well as a fine artist and a uh, royal uh, academician. Uh, there's an example of one of his biscuit tins um, outside in the exhibition. Here are some of the um, collectible uh, uh, books that you had, and he could collect the cards and to paste them in. He designed the books, he designed the, the, the cards. There's a good number of them that um, he did British wildlife, bird portraits, uh, wild birds in Britain, wildflowers, tropical birds, Asian wildlife, African wildlife, uh, and so on. There's 50 cards in each set, so it was quite a phenomenal uh, undertaking. He also illustrated books for um, Puffin as well as Ladybird. Um, uh, ornithologists, as you might imagine, were also particularly keen aficionados of uh, Tannicliffe's works. His um, paintings appeared on scores of um, the RSPB. BPB's um, uh, uh, ma magazine called Bird Notes. In fact, towards the end of his life, he was awarded the gold medal for um, his contribution to wild, uh, wild uh, bird uh, protection. Um, so Charles Tunnicliffe is, is chiefly remembered today. Uh, oh, sorry, these are some of his um, calendars for Boots the Chemist. Um, uh, around about 1945. For these, he did um, large oil paintings. Uh, he did a lot of work for Bibby's. I don't know if there's any farmers amongst us here or coming from farming stock, but you might know Bibby's, which is an animal um, feed specialist. He did a lot of their commercial work. And here are the two of the calendars that he did for Boots the Chemist. And these are two of the oil paintings that he produced to be reproduced um, um, on those uh, magazines. And here's um, also in the exhibition, the Sidney Rogerson book, Both Sides of the uh, Road. Many of his books were illustrated with wood engravings, but they were quite um, slow and laborious to do, so he started increasingly working with colour reproduction of watercolours. Because uh, throughout the 1920s and 30s, it actually, um, there was a much better rendition of colour and the, the printing of, of, of fine watercolours um, had become uh, much easier. So Charles Tunnicliffe is chiefly remembered now as uh, one of Britain's foremost 20th century bird painters. 
all six watercolors that he um, produced for the summer exhibition here in the Academy sold on the uh, opening day. Yet his professional career, which spanned six decades, was considerably more um, varied. We find that the high-profile commercial work that we've just looked at made Charles Tunnicliffe's designs you know, um, familiar to most households, yet it eclipsed his earlier um, endeavours as an etcher and a wood engraver, uh, which has been the focus of the exhibition that you see uh, outside. It was a, as, as an etcher uh, and a wood engraver that he first came to public recognition. First of all, producing fine art prints and then for his wood engravings for books. So as a result, um, the, the current book exhibition uh, project, if you haven't seen it, there's the catalogue raisonné of books, uh, sorry, of, of his prints uh, in, in the shop. Um, this project is the first ever to document his work as a etcher and uh, engraver. We'll also be seeing that Charles Tunnicliffe's work um, often falls between two stools. Uh, many regard him, him as, a, as a commercial artist and questioned whether it was actually art that he was uh, producing. Um, so there's never actually been a good critical study of um, any aspect of the artist's career, and the catalogue raisonné seeks to um, sort of redress that. Here he is, aged at about uh, 19, in his farm in uh, Cheshire, just about a mile south of uh, Macclesfield. He was born um, a, a little town called Langley, and um, his father, who was a cobbler, but on the advice of his uh, doctor, uh, um, took on a, uh, became a tenant dairy farmer. They moved when Charles was two years old to Lane Ends Farm, and they were tenant farmers there um, uh, from 1903. On a summer Sunday evening, Tunnicliffe wrote of his boyhood, I often straddled the black mare and rode into the hills to sit for hours gazing over the 40 miles of Cheshire Plain, where, away to the west, the mountains of Wales rose in dim blue ridges, one behind the other, while the mare cropped at the roadside grass and the sound of the church bells came faintly from the village below. Tunnicliffe was all too aware of, of the, the pollution that was coming from the silk mills of um, uh, Macclesfield. He wrote in uh, his diaries, there's only a few diaries, we found one from 1920 and one from 29, but also in some of the semi-autobiographical books that he wrote, um, he talks of the expansion of Silk Town, as he calls it, calls it, radiated its nasty pink patches and smoky haze. Never again will the peewit nest where those pink blots are, he wrote. No coveys of partridge will call from them, and no sweet-smelling hay will be gathered there again. When will men realise that green fields are among the most priceless and necessary uh, possessions? So, you, quite often, Tunnicliffe worked um, uh, on the same subject as an oil painting, as a watercolour, and as a print. So I thought I'd start uh, with a few examples of, um, of those. Um, he attended Macclesfield School of Art and Manchester School of Art, and then won a scholarship in painting to come to the Royal College of Art in London. 
He joined the engraving school there. Uh, so he came as a painter, he joined the painting school, did three years as a student there, and he was persuaded to join the engraving school for an extra year. And it was there he became absorbed in the art of etching. In London, he talks about his nostalgia for the bucolic scenes that he had, such, just as, such as this, that he had left behind. Um, you know, he wondered why he had come to London to be a student. What a fool to leave those fresh fields and lovely hills, the familiar faces and the friendly animals. Until I was 19 years old, he wrote in my country book, I knew little of any other country than my own corner of East Cheshire. Farm work was never ended and prevented any holidays, but those um, uh, but those, uh, of, um, those holidays we had were of a few hours' duration. Within a radius of three or four miles round the farm, I had an intimate knowledge of every square yard of ground, and with it I was well content, for it was full of beautiful countryside. Etchings such as Haytime here on, on the left sort of show many of the seasonal activities in the farming calendar that um, actually fell to Tunnicliffe um, as a young ma man. When his father determined that the crop was ready for the optimum yield and the weather conditions seemed favourable, there followed an intense period of activity um, at Lane End's farm. Tunnicliffe was up at four o'clock um, every day as the mist hung over the dewy pastures, he wrote, and the birds were just beginning to tune up and he would be out in the fields until the very last um, uh, bit of light. Here we have an oil painting, a watercolour, and a, uh, uh, an etching of the singing ploughman. In London, as a student, he borrowed from his sketchbook um, drawings, uh, memory, and his own experience of working on the land to tell stories of copper, of the subject, on copper, of the subjects that he knew best. He knew that he was an artist that was not going to push back the boundaries of modern art, so what he decided to do was sort of illustrate scenes from his life. It is what he felt he knew best. He wrote that carts, floats, mowing and raking machines, horse harness, and the tools used in the innumerable jobs that a farmer has to do throughout the um, year are all worthy to be set down on paper. But the technology, the farming practices, and the customs that he had accounted on Cheshire farms as a young man were f fast disappearing with um, automation. This um, subject is set at um, uh, Gorsworth, which is near to Sutton uh, Lane Ends. He says um, that Gorsworth um, speaks of other days. Um, uh, and for me, this is probably one of the more romantic representations of his Cheshire homeland. Like his contemporaries, Graham Sutherland, Paul Drury, and Robin Tanner, he drew on activities in the countryside as they vary from season to season. Um, yet, his only, uh, yet the, the harvesters and, and this print uh, evoke more of a sort of emotionally charged and uh, romanticized depiction of rural labor. Here we see a contented ploughman returning from the fields after an honest, honest day's work on the uh, land. It's uncharacteristically nostalgic, I think, for uh, Charles Tunnicliffe. Here we see the print uh, 
full size. This is more typical of Charles Tunnicliffe's Prince of Farming Life, unsentimental representation of the English uh, countryside. It offered a timely alternative to those romanticized, nostalgic uh, portrayals of the land um, by artists such as Robin Tanner and Graham Sutherland, all of whom worked under the influence of Samuel Palmer. They were all outsiders. They were far from farming communities, and they tended to romanticize the work of the shepherd, the plowman, and the farmhand. By co contrast, Tunnicliffe really knew the reality of life on the farm, and we see that in gritty prints such as this, whether it meant carting uh, an aging horse to the knacker's yard, there's a, a, a print of a, an aged horse, the print is called Old Bones, and there's a cart being prepared to, to take it away, whether it's the slitting of a pig's throat or the clearing of soiled animal bedding from the pigsty and the cowshed. It was a hard life, and it was a, a life that Tunnicliffe had sought to um, escape through an art school uh, education. Tunnicliffe's day at Lane Ends typically began at 5 a.m. In his 1920 diary, he chronicles his tasks around the farm before he changes his clothes and goes off to school. Scrubbing the yard, delivering the milk to Gurnet, fetching whey for the pigs, cutting the hay crop, sawing firewood, cleaning out the shippons, sort of a colloquialism for, for the barns, and the pig coats. In this print, labourers at a nearby farm, um, Bullock's Farm, are loading sacks onto um, a, a cart. Tunnicliffe considered that living and working on the farm until he was 19 had greatly influenced his artwork and decided his character. He wrote that years, the years which are supposed to be the most impressionable in one's life were spent in the heart of the country, in close contact with animals and birds, with farms and farmers uh, and their way of life, and with all the thousand and one jobs that a farmer has to do. This one is called Lord in the Muck Cart. It was his job early in the morning to go in and clear out all the uh, soiled straw and put it onto the muck cart, and if there was time, spread it on the fields before he went off to uh, school. Now, this is a, an interesting pair from his early days at, uh, in the engraving school at, at, at the Royal College. M most likely, um, these St. Tunnicliffe kept very few records, so you know, we've had to do a lot of surmising in, in the uh, uh, publication. Um, most likely these were for a submission for the, the Prix de Rome uh, Prize in, in 1925. It's the sort of subject that many artists would be um, encouraged to uh, undertake. And you can see we have two scenes of Adam and Eve. In the left-hand composition, uh, you have, uh, it's called uh, The Fruit of the Tree. And it's a nod, uh, as you might know, to the uh, engraving by Albrecht Dürer. You've got a very well-formed Adam there, uh, reluctantly taking the apple from Eve's um, hand. And she sort of very knowingly and consciously is, is giving a sort of a, a coaxing smile. Aside from the serpent, which you can see uh, in the tree, uh, that tempts Eve to eat the fruit from the forbidden tree, the animals which surround um, the, them are, uh, are more typical of Tunnicliffe's own habitat in the Garden uh, of Eden. There's a heron, there's a moorhen, there's a stag, there's a hare, and there's a hedgehog. 
after committing the original um, sin, Adam and Eve become ashamed of their nakedness and were banished to the uh, Garden of Eden. But rather than um, d depict the couple all downcast because they've been banished from Eden, they are gambling off to a life of transgression, almost like Fred Astaire and, and uh, Ginger Rogers in, in some sort of uh, dance routine. They, they're looking forward to their life of uh, uh, transgression. This is a very strong, powerful print called To the Slaughter, looking at the etching on the left here. Choosing his subjects for etchings, Tunnicliffe drew on his experience of and affection for living and working on the land. With his needles, he, he told stories of the rituals and routines of the Cheshire farmer. Very often we can identify uh, portraits in um, these uh, prints. That's young Tunnicliffe himself bending over and pushing the pig from the uh, rear end. His father, usually with that sort of cloche hat, is standing up. He's got the rope through the pig's snout. Mr. Etchells, the, the butcher from Macclesfield, is preparing the stone uh, slab. And you could probably, someone in the front can see, but just in the doorway there of the barn, his sister Dolly, his young sister Dolly, has a bucket of boiling water ready to pour over the dead pig and then scrape off the um, uh, hairs. So the scene takes place at uh, Lane's End um, uh, Farm. This is a, um, uh, a follow-up, and uh, this is the actual slitting of, of the pig's uh, throat. Um, Tunnicliffe and his father were always on hand. There's Tunnicliffe in the centre holding up the um, back leg. Uh, his sister Dolly, young sister Dolly, has got the front uh, hoof tied and he's pulling it back so there's maximum yield on the, on the neck. It was deemed to be better meat if the pig was allowed to, to um, um, uh, bleed to death. So you can see that, you know, Tunnicliffe was not romanticising in any way uh, life on the uh, English countryside. Mr. Etchells is there again, who's putting the stick into the pig's throat, and the father as well is holding one of the other um, uh, forelegs. What's been interesting about this project was actually the, the difficulty of finding these 400 and I forget how many, 70-something prints that we were eventually able to locate and, and catalogue. In many instances, we had records that prints had been made and exhibited, but no longer were impressions uh, available. He wasn't systematic in his printing. He never always printed full uh, editions. Sometimes only a handful ever existed. So we were fortunate in, in being able to find some copper plates, such as this one, and be able to print uh, from the original copper plate in order to have a print to scan to reproduce uh, in the book. Like many students of his generation, Tunnicliffe was encouraged to go to the British Museum print room and study the old masters. He was a great admirer of Rembrandt, of Dura, Paulus Potter, a Dutch etcher, and the French um, uh, landscape painter and uh, printmaker Jean-Francois Millet. These, he said, were his masters. Probably in the British Museum print room, he encountered um, the um, Rembrandt's portrait of the artist mother seated at a table looking right. And this is um, Tunnicliffe's interpretation of that with a portrait of his own mother 
who, when this print was made in 1924, was widowed herself during that year. This print of, of his mother um, um, uh, milking the cow is actually called the widow. So his mother continued to carry on farming after um, uh, uh, the, the father, William uh, Tannercliffe, had died. Here we see one of the sisters mucking out the uh, uh, chicken coop while the broody hen there is sort of looking after the, uh, keeping a beady eye on uh, its chicks. And here we see Margaret uh, uh, Tannercliffe, the mother again, uh, feeding the, the cattle after uh, milking. She's wearing these great big hefty clogs, because remember her um, husband was formerly um, a, a cobbler before he turned to uh, farmers, uh, farming. Um, the cows knew that after milking, as we saw in the last scene, that there would be some feed for them, and it was Charles' task as a young boy to go up into the hayloft above and to cut the hay to throw it down to his mother, who would then pass it over the stile into the um, uh, uh, over the wall to to the uh, cattle. What Tannercliffe didn't like about it was the early mornings, the winter mornings. He writes in my country book about the sort of frost in the uh, farmyard as he crosses, the frost on the diamond panes of his bedroom window as he lay in the moonlight, putting off the evil moment of getting up, he writes, uh, and he has to cross the, the, the yard and go into the cow shed where actually it was considerably warmer because of the heat of the uh, cattle. Christmas chickens. Here we see um, his two, uh, it's his mother and his sister, uh, and um, they're feeding the chickens at, at winter time. The title is Christmas chickens, which was another name for caper, capons. And uh, basically, they, these are cockerels that are neutered uh, and um, uh, slowly fattened throughout the year. It's now illegal in the UK to caponize um, chickens. Um, but it was quite common practice, if you couldn't afford to have turkeys, to have these great big chickens that um, fed up for uh, Christmas time. This is the mowing machine. For the harvesters, the days were long in the, in the fields and the work was very hard. In some parts of the country, but not yet in this part of East uh, Cheshire, the tractor-drawn combine harvester had already replaced the work of the reaper, the binder, and the threshing machine, thereby eliminating the uh, need for teams of harvesters and heavy manual labor. But it was that heavy manual labor that brought, um, you know, the, the Tunnicliffe was brought up on. After toiling all morning on the mowing machine, and this was a job that Tunnicliffe frequently did himself, um, he got to the point where he had to pay attention to the hay that had been cut the day before, and then he started loading it onto carts. He talks about the skill of having to um, use the pitchfork very carefully because it had to go across the rough fields and down the lane to the farm, where he would then jump on the top of the haystack and pitchfork it to his father, who was waiting in the um, uh, hayloft. Um, he... Um, 
also as well built the hay ricks for, for the family, which were near to, to the, the cow sheds. He not only built them, but he thatched them as well, because it was important to keep the hay dry throughout the winter. Now, of course, that's all done with tractors and balers, and everything is mechanised, and instead of these lovely haystacks, we have these big um, black polymer-wrapped bales um, across the English uh, countryside. Here is the seed roller. Here is his sister Dorothy taking a cup of tea to a neighbour, Mr Cooper. Um, it was hard work as well, pulling these horse-drawn uh, rollers, which were a big single piece of stone. And the idea was that he was sort of flattening the clods of, of earth, the dry earth, so that the seed could be laid. It was also very dry and dusty work. In the engraving school, he had encountered the work of uh, Jean-Francois Millet, the Barbizon school um, etcher. This is, this is the Gleaners from 1855. And it shows similar sort of countryside work. These are the Gleaners picking up the grain left behind in the field after the harvest. Importantly, I think, Tunnicliffe would have recognised in Millet's prints and appreciated the quiet dignity of the French country folk because these people were very much like those that he had grown up amongst in the Cheshire countryside. Um, much of his studies were, were at the Royal College were based upon figure drawing, uh, life drawing every, every day, and figure composition. He said whenever he was set a figure composition that say, had a title like Summer, he said, I could think of nothing else but carting and mowing of hay. Winter meant hungry cattle and the big knife cutting into the haystacks, a pig-killing scene, or a group of rough-coated colts with their tails to the um, weather. Living on a farm, Tunnicliffe was very much aware of the cycles of the seasons um, and the work that each required. This was something he did himself, feeding um, uh, cabbages to, to the livestock that were unable to get to the grass. You can see that the landscape is covered in snow and the grey sky indicating that there's going to be further fall. Uh, another figure composition from the Royal College that was developed into an etching is the sheep doctor. Um, and uh, so basically what's happening here is that uh, the, the sheep's hooves are, are being uh, cut. In the very sort of damp grass of the Cheshire fields, uh, the, the, the long wet grass gets in between the hooves and foot rot can get set in and, and spread to the rest of the herd. So one of the things that has to be done is the hooves have to be cut uh, right back. So the sheep shearer or the sheep doctor, um, uh, sometimes the farmer himself, would come in. Uh, what Tunnicliffe liked was the very sort of undignified and unusual views he got of the sheep's legs and feet uh, that were normally sort of um, hidden beneath the, the mass of wool. But of all the animals that um, Tunnicliffe uh, depicts and writes about, um, it is his... Um, uh, he paints a really vivid picture in his books of um, the bull's territorial behaviour. They were dairy farmers, although they kept pigs and they had chickens as well. Essentially, they were dairy farmers, so he knew more about bulls and cattle than uh, anything else. One of his favourite things to do as a child, he said, was to go up to the gate in the field and go, mmm. <laughs> 
and really get the bull riled up. So the bull would scatter all the other cattle. It would come up to the fence, but Tunnicliffe would be hiding behind the hedge. And, you know, he'd be going, and um, so the bull would get really riled then. He would start kicking up clods of earth. You could see him digging into the soil. And then he's got his horn in the hawthorn there, digging up the, the roots. So he's really sort of uh, in a rage there. But this is not Tunnicliffe tormenting the beast. This is actually, you can see a bull um, uh, on the other side of the hedge. So it's a very real threat in this case. And in the background, we see Tunnicliffe's beloved Cheshire Plains. In this print, the thief, Tunnicliffe, returns to the theme of unruly animals. According to his 1920 diary, this scene is one that happened a lot um, at Lane End's farm. On several occasions, he writes that he had to chase after the heifers that had gotten into Rathbone's ground. He had to return Slater's colts that had twice broken over the fence in the meadow and hunt a dozen little pigs which always managed to trespass on someone else. Tunnicliffe recommended acquiring some, norma, some um, uh, knowledge of farming ways and procedure to gain understanding of the models. He felt that he, was, he had a grasp of drawing animals because he'd worked with them so closely. In, in the case of many of the pigs, he brought them into the world, the same with the lambs. So the fact that he was working with and actually handling animals gave him a head start in terms of uh, the anatomy, but also the, the, the character, having spent much of his boyhood working with um, uh, cattle. But he said, if you're going to, because he also wrote a book on drawing farm animals, and he said, if you're going to draw those farm animals, beware you're on the other side of a very strong uh, fence. The thief in question here um, is a short-horn bull that had broken from its um, enclosure, despite that heavy log which was chained around its neck, um, which was meant to restrict its uh, movement. You, could, uh, you perhaps can't see from the back, but there's a, a farmer, Mr. Tunnicliffe, senior, uh, with a cloche hat there, um, climbing over the fence, trying to um, retrieve the bull. Um, this is uh, Paulus Potter, and I think he, he's an artist. I, I must admit I didn't know of Paulus Potter before I started working on Tunnicliffe. Um, and he was a Dutch um, etcher in the 17th century, and he specialised in these animal portraits, and, uh, but particularly with the low um, horizon line. And I think Tunnicliffe learned a lot from his um, uh, compositions involving a single animal or, uh, in a landscape setting with a low horizon. This is a print from 1929, Winter Dawn. He, was, uh, he writes in his diary about having gone up um, on New Year's Day. Um, it was very snowy and he went um, out, took a bus ride and went up into the fields and he took photographs actually, rarely did he work from photographs. Um, uh, and he, within three days he was pulling proofs of um, uh, th this particular print. One of my favorite Tunnicliffs is this Harvesters of 1925. So we've seen that haymaking and all the activities of cutting, curing, raking, carting and storing uh, were the subject of, of several Tunnicliffe 
uh, etchings. Haymaking was a sort of a coming together of the community of the farmers, their relatives and farmhands to ensure that the harvest was brought um, in when the crop was ready and the weather favourable. His mother would be at home baking, preparing lunch for the, for the workers. They'd have homemade bread and traditional uh, Cheshire cheese. They'd have milk. And when the harvest was in, um, the, Mr. Tunnicliffe Sr. would open a cask of beer to quench the harvesters' throats. Um, it's been pointed out that actually um, Tunnicliffe owned a book about the etchings of Fritz Böhler, a German etcher from the early part of the 20th century. He died in 1910. But you can see really close parallels between that, Tunnicliffe, and the composition there. He, Tunnicliffe depicts the Persian horse, which was his, one of his sort of most favorite horses. But here we have uh, cattle and, and the farmer, or oxen and the farmers returning home from the field. So he did own a copy of a new monograph that was published in 1910 of Fritz Böhler's etchings, and in fact, this returning from the fields is uh, reproduced. Here we have a portrait, a self-portrait. This is one of the copper plates that turned up and we didn't know existed, actually, um, and we were able to print. Here's a self-portrait, the only etched self-portrait uh, done in his fourth year, uh, a fellow etcher at the Royal College was F.C. Frederick Clifford Dixon, and uh, he wrote his recollections of his time in, in the Royal College, and he was quite friendly with Tunnicliffe at that time, and he remembered him striding down the main corridor with buoyant and purposeful energy. He looked every bit the countryman, rather plump and robustly built, with a roundish ruddy face with um, slightly protruding eyes that seemed to look ahead at some sort of distant goal. At the Royal College, Tunnicliffe also met his wife-to-be, fellow student Winifred Wanacott, um, uh, during their second year of studies. She was born in Belfast and had won a scholarship to study pottery at the Royal College under William State Murray. They were married in 1929 and moved back to um, she was from Manchester. Although she was born in Belfast, her family were now living in Manchester, so they moved back to uh, Macclesfield. The couple were devoted to each other throughout their, their lives. They shared similar interests and they worked as a team. Winifred gave up her career as an artist. Winnie, as she was known, was the mainstay for Ch in Charles's career for 40 years, an essential contributor to his remarkable success. Uh, as well as in drawing and in painting, Winifred was trained in pottery, bookbinding, leather and needlework, and cabinet making. Indeed, when they got married and moved to Macclesfield, they actually sourced some local oak, and assisted by Charles, she designed and constructed a bookcase, dining table, and chairs, uh, as well as a carved bedroom suite wardrobe sideboard and uh, bed, headboard and footboard uh, for the home. She made them all from scratch. Also, all Charles did was helped with the um, decorative uh, patterning. By the time he moved back to Macclesfield, his mother had given up Lane End's farm and was living um, in Herdsfield. Just, well, it's all part of Macclesfield now, but it was sort of a new suburb on, on the edge of Macclesfield before. Um, after, so after seven years in, in London, he felt the need for more contact with the country. 
Um, and he recalled that he soon found him, that now that he was no longer immersed in farming, that he found himself drawing bits of Macclesfield town. And to his surprise, he was interested in the architecture of the houses and the church. Um, and uh, uh, so just as much as he is here in the cattle, uh, the cattle fair uh, on Waters Green. Waters Green is a, is a large open space. Um, so he's standing here with the back, his back to the, to the railway uh, line and there's uh, St. Michael's Church on the top of the hill there. Of course, this was uh, a scene that Tanny Cliff had known since childhood. There's also this etching looking back to the railway line, so Waters Green is now behind him. And um, Tanny Cliff observed that his work was falling into three genres, really. Pure landscapes and townscapes, animal paintings and portraits. And um, this etching shows Stanley Turner, who was the local horse auctioneer, uh, uh, on Waters uh, Green. And the booth is, is next to the, the, the elevated railway line that you can see there. Whether at Lane End's farm or whether in Herdsfield, where um, Tanya Cliff and Winnie were now living, um, they were never far from the Macclesfield Canal. And, uh, Tanya Cliff spent a lot of time walking back and forth the canal um, footpath, drawing and painting the bridges, the locks, the sluice gates and activity along the canal. The embankment at Sutton was a popular mooring place on the Macclesfield Canal uh, and in this etching we see a, a sort of bargee tying up for the night. His wife's getting the cooking pots and pans ready and the young son is there indicated that he wants to play and run in the fields with the dog. Tunnicliffe was also an accomplished portrait um, uh, painter, as we can see. Um, in his uh, 1929 diary, he tells of drawing and paintings he made of his wife, his nieces, his sisters and his brother-in-law, as well as the uniformed policeman who lived opposite him on Nicholsfield um, Avenue. When the Sutton Lane Ends parishioners organised a garden party in the village, they enlisted Tunnicliffe to draw portraits to raise money for the parish. He agreed on condition that they found him 40 sitters and he could keep all the drawings. So he was a very canny businessman, as we'll, we'll find out. And he made lots of drawings of the church wardens, the choirmen, the farmers, members uh, of, the, of the Mother's Union and the Girls' Friendly Society. Uh, the portrait of the carpenter, I haven't got a name for him yet, but I'm in contact with the person uh, who's contacted the RA since this exhibition has come on. It's a portrait of her grandfather, but it was painted at this time. The small niece on the left is now in Manchester City Art Gallery. It was bought by them in 1929 when new. This is his self-portrait. It's only nine inches by six inches, beautiful little oil painting. He was a keen motorcyclist. Everybody thinks he's an airman, but he's got his sort of motorcycling uh, kit on. And when he's etching, and he's waiting for the etching in, in, you know, to, to do the work on the copper plate, he's also writing that he's got his bike in pieces on the studio floor, and he's sort of repairing it. Anyway, he said it was too wet one Sunday afternoon to go out and um, uh, to go for a ride on the bike, so he stayed in and put his helmet on, and he painted this portrait in an afternoon. So we actually have an exact date um, that on well, uh, 22nd of June 1929, that this was started and uh, completed. 
Here we have a portrait of Henry Williams, Williamson, author of Tarka the Otter and many other sort of countryside uh, books. It was Winifred first read um, Tarka the Otter in 1930. She re recommended it to Charles, thinking that it would be just the sort of book that he would like, but also it would be marvellous for illustration, she said. So typical Tunnicliffe, he gets straight on to the job and he sends four etchings with aquatins to the publisher, um, to Williamson's publisher, Putman, suggesting that he illustrate Tarka the Otter. Um, and of course, etching is not suitable for um, uh, cheap editions of, of books because it's a different process from that which prints the, the type. So nevertheless, um, Constant Huntington, who was the editor-in-chief at Putman, sent the etchings on to Williamson in Devon and asked for his opinion. Uh, Williamson was very taken with them. Um, so they decided to write to uh, um, Tunnicliffe and suggest that he does wood engravings. As far as I know, he'd only ever done one wood engraving while a student at the Royal College. Within two weeks, he had written from Macclesfield to T.N. Lawrence here in London, ordered the blocks, had them shipped up to uh, Macclesfield, had the drew the designs onto the blocks, um, printed six blocks and sent the proofs to Putnam's. So, you know, he was really keen. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he got the commission then to, to produce wood engravings for the um, first illustrated edition of Tarka the Otter. And that project really helped to establish um, his career. He'd only produced those six um, illustrations when Putman's wrote to him and said, well, actually, we're doing a series of Henry Williamson short stories. There's another three volumes coming out after this one. Will you illustrate those as well? So he produced 24 full-page wood engravings for each of those uh, four volumes. He also did uh, 35 illustrations for um, a sort of mystical novel that um, uh, Williamson wrote called The uh, Starborn. But I would point out that these books were not eventually printed from the original woodblocks. Metal electrotypes were made from the, the, the woodblocks to protect them. He only got a fee of £50 per book, so it was about £2 per, per design. But he was able to agree that he could keep the blocks and that after a little while he could edition the blocks and sell them as signed limited uh, edition prints. And that agreement was something that he stuck to then throughout his life, that whenever he did the illustrations, he kept the, the copyright of the designs. So the next book was The Old Stag, uh, and that was also a, a sort of a, this was a compendium of uh, short stories on the theme of fox hunting, otter hunting, um, and Tunnicliffe visited uh, Williamson in, in Devon on several uh, occasions and Williamson took him around in the car and showed him the, uh, the, the sort of uh, scenes, the landscape settings and the local colour that could be used to um, illustrate the book. But Williamson, importantly, didn't want illustrations. He wanted Tunnicliffe to make pictures on similar themes that were discussed in the book so that he saw them as two sort of complementary series of 
um, artworks. Here is uh, some, some designs from the old stag, which is a compilation of nine nature um, essays. The Sky is Their Highway. This is um, a book for Kenneth Williamson, absolutely no relation at all um, to Henry Williamson. He was a Lancashire-born ornithologist with a particular interest in bird migration. So that's the, um, he produced a series of eight um, wood engravings for that. I think one of the nicest books, if I've inspired you to go out and collect uh, some of these books, um, is this one, A Book of Birds, um, edited by Mary Priestley. Mary Priestley was Mrs. J.B. Priestley. And she put together a compilation of books on, uh, sorry, uh, short extracts on ornithological um, subjects. And then Tunnicliffe made these, not illustrations really, but rather decorations to accompany the text. This is a really handsome little volume, and you can easily pick it up online. Um, very inexpensively, uh, and more importantly, I think this one was printed from the original woodblocks. And for this, as you can see, he produced 81 um, wood engravings. The model for this series of books, which also had illustrations by Agnes Miller Parker, uh, uh, separate books by Agnes Miller Parker and by Claire Layton, was uh, Thomas Buick's um, uh, books and uh, also the natural history of Selborne. So it's very much seen to be coming out of that tradition. And finally, of his printed works, Richard Jeffrey's Wildlife in a Southern uh, County, um, which also has um, uh, original wood engravings. By this time, Charles Tunnicliffe was uh, established as you can see, he was a bit of a novelty when he was elected an RA because he had giant hands from all his work in farming. So typically the Daily Express or the Daily Mirror picks up on the fact that Mr. Giant Hands um, has, it's almost like as if he's a freak of nature that you know, he can do engravings. Um, and it says, an engraver with outsized hands who specializes in drawing animals. Uh, and that's all they had to say uh, on, on the subject. But anyway, he, he'd made it. He'd got the, the peer group um, uh, uh, recognition. Here he is. At that time, in the mid-40s, uh, 1947, in fact, he, they, he and uh, Winnie relocated from uh, Macclesfield to Anglesey, where they spent the rest of their life. They'd been going to the Mathtrith estuary, Mathtrith, which is on the Avon Kevney estuary, uh, for many years, through, um, and particularly a lot throughout the war. And they finally bought uh, a bungalow there. This is the, uh, one of the views that he did of Anglesey, ploughing the fields. Anglesey is actually quite flat, uh, and then you've got the Menai estuary, and then you've got Snowdonia as this magnificent backdrop uh, in the middle. But really the important thing for him was all the birds that he could draw and paint. It is at Shawlands, which is the name of their bungalow, that he starts making these, uh, uh, um, what he called po post-mortem drawing studies. They're sheets that size, and he would fill them with studies of dead birds that he'd been brought. People would find them and bring them in. If they were a nice specimen, you know, he felt that he learned such a lot from them. These were his feather maps. 
He didn't agree really with doing paintings from the dead birds, but this allowed him to, to study the proportions of the bird, the anatomy, but also the arrangements and, and groupings of the, the feathers. So the, he felt that he had to handle the birds, and the more informed he was, the better that uh, they would be. You know, I have taken very little interest in, in birds throughout my whole life, and I've learned such a lot from just working on this Tunnicliffe project. Just for him, what mattered was not the fact that it was a particular bird, but it was whether it was a male or a female, a juvenile or an adult, or how the feathers changed from season to um, season. But he said the greatest um, sort of teacher of them all is to, to study the living uh, bird. Just a few last wood oh, these are that's another one of his um, post-mortem drawings. There are about, I think, 300 of these Large, large drawings, and they're all at the museum now uh, on Anglesey. I'll skip this one. Here we have the Percheron, one of the larger wood engravings. The 81 wood engravings that he did for the Book of Birds was a killer, really, because he did them in a short space of time. It was a real strain on his eyes. So he made very few prints after 1938-39. Probably one or two larger wood engravings that he could exhibit in the RA each year. This is the Percheron horse. Um, his favourite draft horse, typically dapple grey, with that lovely big rounded ribs and the big hind quarters, very strong um, beast, very powerful and, and good uh, tempered, uh, very common in, in Britain at that time. The Shire Stallion, he loved the stallions. He, he talked about as a child when the stallions paraded past the farm because the groom would be taking them between the farms to sire the mare and he would go out and try and beg a card because the, um, the, the grooms carried cards and it had all the attributes of this particular stallion and he collected these cards like a generation later young children would be collecting his um, tea cards. Um, the Chartley Bull uh, this one he drew, at, uh, I think, at Whipsnade Zoo, although um, uh, um, there, were, there were other breeds. This is the, uh, uh, around the UK at, at the time. The Chartley Bull um, is, is one of the sort of descendants of the old uh, white park, park cattle, white cattle that once roamed around uh, Britain. In fact, as Charles Tunnicliffe was making this print, the British government were making plans to, because this was uh, 1939, the government were already making plans to ship breeding pairs of Chartley bulls over to the um, um, uh, Canada, uh, so that they they would survive, you know, the, survive the war. Here are some. Only the centre one is in uh, the current exhibition. The other two are the same size. The goshawk. It was really illustrating Tony, um, Williamson's uh, book, The Peregrine Saga, um, that was to have a marked influence on his interest in um, hawks. Uh, the goshawk, the he said, was uh, an amazing sight. It sat upright and still with cruel yellow feet grasping the leather padding of the bow perch. Uh, and the feet were not so cruel as the yellow ringed eyes which glared at every moving thing and did not miss the smallest bird as it passed over. 
But notice as well how important the little bit of background is to him, whether it's the, the leaves or the pine needles or the bamboo leaves behind the uh, cockatoo. Increasingly, his work was becoming less um, about realism and more about decoration. Here we have um, the, the Chinese geese, uh, where he takes an interest in the patterns in the water. A gentle ripple on the pool produces amazing patterns, he said, while the complexity of the water, which is um, disturbed by the strong breeze, is almost past our understanding. So he's becoming more sort of, of uh, decorative uh, in his um, uh, works. This is in the present exhibition, Geese Among Mallow from 1944. He said that duck, of ducks and geese, he said, volumes could be written about their charms and attractions, uh, and whatever they do, they seem incapable of adopting an ugly uh, pose. But it's here he starts taking an interest in that little bit of background, the one square yard that surrounded the um, animal. He also um, uh, encouraged fellow artists to learn from Japanese and um, Chinese and Persian painting as well. He did several images of birds preening themselves, such as the heron. He talks about the way in which the wing formations, the uh, groupings of um, uh, uh, feathers, change as the bird moves about. Just to speed up a little now, red wings and waterfall, again, has that sort of um, decorative uh, feel. He argued that details such as tussocks of grass, water-filled hoof prints of cattle, the patterns of bird tracks on the um, soft mud, autumn leaves in the gutter or, the, or on a floating pond, all have a significance when introduced into the picture. In nature as in art, they can be full of meaning and to the knowledgeable convey a world of information. Look at the Chinese, Japanese, and Persian paintings, he um, argued, and the exquisite drawing of the flowers and branch and tussocks and bamboo, which do not detract at all from the bird uh, itself. Nature, he wrote, was a master pattern maker, capable of designs far more wonderful than anything that I could ever have invented. With the flattened forms and attention to um, uh, these sort of um, patterns in nature, they do become increasingly decorative rather than uh, factual. Doves on a gargoyle. He says, if you go out draw, drawing birds, um, it'll take you into wild, beautiful places. But then he cautioned young artists that there is always a fierce ornithologist just around the corner, ready to pounce and rend you should you make a birdie faux pas. This one is called Sea Sculpture. Having made a trip to the Hebrides as well in 1934, that, he says, is the, the first, the start of the serious bird watching, where he's out there with the field glasses and a pencil and a sketchbook. He spends much of the rest of his career in a raincoat on his tummy, with sketchbook in front of him, field glasses and sketchbook. Silver pheasant, the black swan family, which was at Reedsmere, a man-made lake just south of Macclesfield, blue-eared pheasants, pheasant. He also talked about moving birds. How do you draw them? Uh, he didn't like using photographs because that gives a, a sort of unnatural mechanical view. His preferred way was to just stare 
and stare and stare at the moving bird, and just almost until it's photographed in his mind's eye. And then he would draw with his eyes closed onto the sketchbook, getting down the shapes. Then he would open his eyes, and he felt that he had a much better feel of the overall form and movement, even though it was disjointed, but that he would bring it back together um, with his knowledge of um, bird anatomy, feather groupings, colors, and studies, uh, etc. He was never averse to taking on commissions. He did lots of pet portraits. He was, after all, a commercial jobbing artist. Um, he would do portraits of pets, of this oil painting of a Siobese cat. He would do copies of paintings if requested. He uh, regularly sold all six paintings um, from the summer exhibition here uh, within minutes of the exhibition opening. The only other artist I know um, we can say that of is Stanley Anderson, who was the uh, subject of our last exhibition here. There are letters in the Macclesfield archive from collectors, disappointed collectors, who said, oh, we were just a few minutes late and it had sold and I really like that one and I want, will you do me one? Yes, I'll do you one. What size do you want? Um, the X size will cost you this, X size will cost you that, and um, you know, I, can, I can get it done for you. Because he kept tracings of all the paintings that he did. So maybe Winifred uh, would have done the tracings for him, so they were traced onto the paper, and he'd do another one. Um, this is a rather lovely one of, of, of Siamese, or this rather grand-looking uh, poodle. So he really wasn't averse to pet portraits at all. So I'm just going to, to round off now. Um, Bagot goats, he was also getting commissions from sort of specialist breeders. Um, the breeder of these uh, bagot goats, or particularly of prized cockerels and um, fancy pigeons. Here we have fighting cocks, leghorn cockerel and fancy pigeons. Well, everybody has said that Charles Tunnicliffe was very much a sort of a countryman, very down-to-earth and completely unpretentious. He was out of his, not out of his depth here, but this wasn't his world uh, within the, the, the Royal Academy. I don't think he ever event, attended events here. Um, but basically, you know, he, it was a, a recognition that uh, being appointed academician that he was very sort of proud of, but he wasn't part of the sort of London scene and didn't um, sort of come to openings and, and that sort of things. He was not really given to discussing his art. Um, he talked a lot about his processes, what he liked doing. He'd tell you all sorts of things about the different animals and their, their characteristics, but you don't actually get down to the nitty-gritty of what the art might be um, about. He was not a man of great learning, but he was very accomplished and he had a, a profound um, knowledge. So one doesn't look to Tunnicliffe's writings re really to yield any information or um, give us insights into the work of the man. Nature is very much the central uh, character uh, here. So this catalogue raisonné is the starting point, an attempt to arrive at a new appreciation of an artist who, though wildly, while he is uh, widely remembers for his commercial work, has never been the subject of an art historical um, study. Um, 
There is obviously a, a specialised audience who discern and approve of, of the accuracy of Tannicliffe's renderings of the, the natural world, but critics, art historians and curators have largely um, neglected to engage with his work. Tannicliffe argued that a picture is purely uh, a man-made thing, the result of a man's mentality. He would often shock people by saying, to hell with nature, that you know, it's the picture that matters. And you can see that in those later paintings, that he's taking the heron or the game hen and he is um, creating a picture uh, around them. Tunnicliffe's work had enormous popular appeal by um, uh, collectors. Um, you know, the RA secretary observed that in the case of him and, and of, of uh, Stanley Anderson, collectors wore their gym shoes when the doors opened for the summer uh, exhibition so that they could race through the galleries and have first pick. Um, Tony Clifford learned a lot to work on demand through his time as, as a commercial artist and producing book um, illustration. So the nature uh, of much of that which... Um, Tunnicliffe did actually defies the term art, at least in the sort of romantic or modernist sense. Uh, for instance, his contemporary paintmaker Stanley Anderson rejected the term artist, arguing that the old assignments such as stone carver, painter, engraver, illuminator or cabinet maker were free from the snobbery that surrounds uh, artist. Anderson, nearly 20 years his senior, senior very much appreciated Tunnicliffe's diligence and his commitment and his uh, skill, and he was behind the uh, Tunnicliffe's election, nomination and election to the Royal Academy. For both Tunnicliffe and for Anderson, self-expression was not the chief aim of their art. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.